This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington, and joining us in our studios, Greg Miller. He covers national security issues for The Washington Post. And I want to take a deep dive on a piece that you posted in late December. This is the headline. In the aftermath of the Ukraine crisis, a climate of mistrust and threats. What have you learned? Well, we set out to do this piece because we were getting indications throughout our reporting on the Ukraine investigation uh, that the people who were coming forward and who had come forward were paying a significant price and one that sort of seemed different to us than in other scandals and controversies. Uh, And so really this is a story that looks at a lot of uh, individuals we now know, they're not quite household names, but people like Fiona Hill, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, uh, and others who testified, uh, and the harassment, and in some cases the absolute hate, hateful um, uh, um, treatment that they endured as a result, whether online or in many cases personally, attacks on them including by the president in several notable cases. And so this was an attempt to try to document that. Uh, I mean, it, it tells us a lot, of, I think, about our political climate, that, this is, that there is this substantial a price for coming forward in doing what they thought was their duty and the right thing. There is a lot in this piece, and as a way to unpack it, I want to read some of the excerpts. We should also point out it is available at WashingtonPost.com. But this one sentence pretty much summarizes your reporting and analysis. Quote, for decades, the GOP casting itself as the champion of the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon, and other national security institutions. But over the past three years, Republicans have repeatedly turned on those agencies when necessary to protect President Trump and his presidency. Yeah, it's sort of an upside-down world for me and, and other reporters who cover national security, and I've done this for a long time now. And the 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 party that always cast itself as the defender of the CIA or the Pentagon or the FBI, the Law and Order Party, um, has has turned on these agencies in a in a really dramatic way under the Trump administration. We of course saw that during the Russia investigation, where entire kind of um, sections of the party sought to discredit the FBI, sought to discredit the the Mueller investigation and so forth. Um, and it's and it's intensified in the in the case surrounding Ukraine. Uh, and you know one of the data I think it's just a really remarkable that the the way that uh, um, the Republican Party was in such lockstep with the president on the on the outcome here, despite the testimony, despite, the dismay, this palpable dismay that you was not that hard to detect at at entities like the the State Department or the FBI or the CIA. I guess the question then is why? Why is this happening? Why not more GOP voices expressing their concern or raising the alarm bells? Yeah, and that's that's a question that was really at the center of this story. And it's hard. It's really hard to answer, I think, because I think there, in fact, there are several answers. The answer you will get if you interview Republicans and speak with them is, well, this is all nonsense. This is all made up. This is all a hoax, or this is all uh, ginned up by the Democratic Party. Uh, and these institutions have been turned against us. It's not we've turned against them. It is that they have been turned against us for political purposes. 
Um, but you know there are there are other explanations you'll encounter as well, and it's hard not to look at it and think, well, there's a very crass political calculation here. President Trump is now the standard bearer for the Republican Party. Uh, our hold on the presidency depends to a large measure on his ability to win re-election next year. There are all these other aspects of our agenda that 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 hinge on that as well. The placement of Supreme Court judges, for example, and so it's we, we're in a moment in American history where it's all in, right? It's it's a it's a fully hyperpartisan uh, climate. And along those lines, you write the following, quote, an entire roster of public servants has been disparaged, bullied, and in some cases banished for standing in Trump's path as he sought to pressure Ukraine for political favors or for testifying about his conduct afterwards. Again, these are career civil servant employees, hard to determine whether they're Democrats, Republicans, or independent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and President Trump has gone after some of them, saying that they are never Trumpers. You shouldn't trust them. You shouldn't listen to them. These are these are never Trumpers. They're in league with all of my, those uh, enemies, even within the Republican Party, who would refuse to serve in, in the Trump administration. When, in fact, this this is, in many cases, these are the opposite. These are people who took jobs in the Trump administration after Trump was elected and seated as president. Uh, and it's so it just all the more startling the price that they pay. I mean, Fiona Hill is a really good example. Uh, she paid a significant personal and professional price for taking a job in the Trump White House as its senior advisor on Russia, respected expert on Russia, literally wrote the book on Vladimir Putin, uh, a career as a fairly nonpartisan figure. Uh, she takes this job in this White House uh, and it so upsets some of her peers that they were, you know, there are people who refuse to even talk with Fiona Hill these days, who she worked with uh, prior to joining the Trump administration. And she sort of gets it coming and going because now she is, uh, uh, you know, a target of the right wing um, media and uh, disparaged on the right for uh, as accused of of carrying and hiding this anti-Trump agenda while she worked for the guy for two years. And you point out, just to give our listeners a sense of, of how deep that this is uh, gone, Alex Jones, on his broadcast November 22nd, said of Fiona Hill the following, I want her ass indicted. I want her indicted for perjury. Today, indict that whore. Right. I mean, those are startling words, and I and I have to say, uh, Steve, those are not. That is that is fairly indicative of the level of hostility that many of these witnesses have faced, uh, and in Fiona's case, faced even before impeachment, faced even before the Ukraine controversy. This was the sort of treatment she faced for nearly two years working in the Trump White House. She was targeted almost from the outset, uh, almost before she arrived in her job by Alex Jones and Infowars, accusing her of being a mole for George Soros and all of this fairly um, out there fringe stuff. Um, but it sticks. Uh, she had a caller. Uh, she would arrive to work many days during her her tenure at the White House to voice uh, voicemails that were along those lines, just vicious, uh, profane attacks day after day after day. And we've talked to lots. I've covered national security for a long time, covered the National Security Council and people who've worked there for years and years. 
it it wasn't that long ago that that it wasn't like that. I mean, it's always at the center of controversy. There are difficult decisions there, but the level of venom uh, that these people encounter is off the charts. So does it come from the top? Is the president responsible? I think the answer has to be yes. I mean, I don't know how you can get around that. Uh, Trump um, attacks many of these people, sets the sets the uh, tone, kind of, especially from Twitter. Uh, he has disparaged uh, Alexander Vindman and many of the other witnesses, uh, uh, Ambassador Taylor. Um, I mean, he goes after these people, not only goes after them, but, but also often promotes or um, amplifies the attacks of the far right. It is, it is core to his political playbook. I mean, it, is, uh, it was one of his longtime political associates, Roger Stone, who led the first rounds of attacks on Fiona Hill, even in her first weeks at the White House, for example. And some of these individuals... Colonel Vindman among them, still at the White House, still working on national security affairs and issues. You have to wonder what their day-to-day job is like today, and you're shaking your head. It's a, it must be so surreal, uh, because uh, somebody like Colonel Vindman, who's been there now for well over a year, probably a year and a half or so, um, has never met the president. He serves as the chief Ukraine advisor, right? So there have been a lot of decisions about Ukraine. He's never met Trump. Not ne- once. Not once. Never spoken to him. Never interacted with him in any way. And yet Trump has attacked him publicly, has vilified him, has said nasty things about him in uh, in the press. Uh, it must be surreal for Vindman to go to work each day and be in an environment like that. I mean, he was he he goes there. He takes this job to advise this administration on Ukraine policy, and he has a lot of deep expertise in that. But that expertise doesn't really go anywhere when the commander-in-chief holds the individual responsible for it in the lowest possible regard. Let me remind our listeners that we are talking with Greg Miller. His work is available at WashingtonPost.com, a national security reporter. I want to come back to all of these issues in just a moment. But first, your background, California native. How did you end up in Washington? I ended, Well, so um, I grew up in California and after college was uh, began working for the Los Angeles Times in Southern California. Great, great paper. Uh, and uh, came to Washington in 2001 actually just several months before the 9-11 attacks um, for to work in the Washington Bureau for the Los Angeles Times. And, um, you know, obviously everything changed uh, on, on September 11, 2001 and in the L.A. Times Bureau and many other places. So uh, since then, uh, my career has focused on covering national security and uh, the CIA and other U.S. intelligence agencies. I happened to visit uh, the 9-11 Museum in Lower Manhattan over the weekend, and one of the things that stood out, again, the reminder, is that on 9-11, there were a lot of silos of information, but not talking to each other among America's national security and foreign policy apparatus. And based on what you're writing in the Washington Post, are we better today? Are there concerns based on the morale and the the frustration within these agencies in dealing with this president? Yeah, it's hard to know. It's hard to get a complete visibility into that. But my my impression from talking to lots and lots of people over the past couple of years is that these agencies are continuing to function fairly well. I mean, they're full of professional people who do their jobs and see that as the highest calling. Uh, And yet, 
you know, there is a heavy cost for morale when you work for a president. I mean, there there is nothing more prestigious for a CIA analyst than for his or her work to end up in the president's daily brief, for instance. But this president doesn't read that brief, does not actually doesn't believe a lot of what he's told, rejects a lot of the agency's opinions and positions, and including on Russian interference in 2016. Uh, and so, I mean, it's a it's a very strange set of circumstances. And I and and in, in our story, we talk to in some degree about the toll that this takes and the morale, uh, the the devastating effect it can have on morale. We sat down with President Trump back in July, and one of the questions I asked him is whether or not he has reached out to his predecessors, Presidents Obama, Clinton, and Bush, on any matter. And the answer was no. He has not talked to any former president. Does that surprise you, and does it surprise you that the former presidents have not been more vocal when it comes to national security and foreign policy issues? I don't think it can be very surprising to us at this point that that President Trump hasn't uh, sought out advice from any of his predecessors. I mean, that is very consistent with his uh, with his conduct and his approach to this job across the board. Uh, I mean, he is he has told reporters for the Washington Post, you know, that the that um, that for, that the science on climate change isn't very convincing to him, and that his gut tells him that a lot of it is wrong. I mean, this, this is somebody who who uh, who reacts instinctively to things and believes that. He has uh, that his instincts are really all that matter, not not the information that's sort of laid out. Um, and I guess you know there is this obviously this, this this tradition as you must as you know well, Steve, that former presidents are loath to to criticize their successors uh, or to speak about them disparagingly. There's a lot of respect for the institution of the presidency, um, and so. But I think that it must be hard for them to sit on their hands uh, uh, in many instances uh, when they when they see uh, what's happening. And I think that President Bush, um, you know, who whose uh, father worked at as director of the CIA, uh, must have been. Uh, it must be hard for him to see the way the agency and um, and other entities of national security are treated. So if we could, let's go back to the House investigation into President Trump and the impeachment inquiry. And I want you to listen to this exchange with Representative Terry Sewell, Democrat of Alabama and former U.S. ambassador, a key witness. She served as our envoy in Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. My Republican colleagues have said that since you received such adulation from and embracing from your own fellow colleagues, that what occurred, the incident that occurred with the president um, and his cronies, you know, uh, maligning your reputation, how, has that had a chilling effect on the ability um, and the morale within the Foreign Service? Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think that I think that it has had exactly that, a chilling effect not only in Embassy Kyiv, but throughout the State Department, uh, because people don't know um, kind of whether their efforts to pursue our stated policy are going to be um, supported. And that um, that is a dangerous place to be. Greg Miller, when you hear that again, what's your reaction? Uh, my reaction, she's touching on something there that's really fundamental to this presidency, which is that there's this 
astonishing disconnect between what the official policy is and what Trump's position is. Uh, and within the administration, I mean, there, there are enormous gaps between what national security officials will say the, what they're, that they're trying to accomplish or what their agenda is in a place like Ukraine and what the president's actual agenda is. And the Ukraine investigation, I think, has laid that bare in a way that we had not seen previously in his presidency. Because we can see these meetings and these developments that the kind of apparatus is trying to set in motion. Uh, a policy of, of helping Ukraine fight off aggression from Russia that threw across the sort of official part of Washington they were trying to maintain. And yet Trump gets on the phone with the leader of Ukraine and pays no attention to that agenda, is only focused on asking for investigations into Joe Biden. So there is this huge disconnect that people like Ambassador Yovanovitch are trying to navigate every day. Uh, and what she's, what she's only alluding to there is, you know, the, the difficulty of always wondering whether you're, the, the rug will be yanked out from under you. She's not going one step further and talking about the, you know, the intimidation or the fear that you will be hung out to dry or pilloried in some humiliating public fashion by the president, which compounds that that fear that they operate under. I want to go back to a piece that you posted on December 19th with regard to Ukraine specifically. And if you could explain why the president has consistently thought that it was Ukraine, not Russia, interfering in the 2016 election. I, I, you know, I wish I could explain that. <laughs> uh, well, uh, let me say this. I think that the, the way to look at that is that the president from the very beginning has rejected uh, every, at every opportunity, has tried to undercut uh, the case that Russia interfered in 2016 for one overriding reason. He sees that as, as an enormous and embarrassing asterisk I think unnecessarily. Um, I mean, he sees that as delegitimizing his presidency, as evidence that his that his adversaries uh, hold out as proof that he didn't really win that election fair and square. So his inability to get over that is what is what drives things like Ukraine. I mean, he literally, after listening to. Uh, Robert Mueller testify in mid-July about the findings of the Russia investigation. The next day is on the phone with the leader of Ukraine uh, espousing conspiracy theories about uh, the missing, supposed missing DNC servers being hidden in that country. Uh, it's all connected for him. It is all about his legitimacy uh, and and the... Um, and the in the record of his of his election in 2016. What impact is all of this going to have over the next four to five years? Because clearly there is a pipeline of individuals who train to become career civil servant employees, foreign service officers, career diplomats. What are we seeing in terms of the employment records and what we might expect over the next three to five years? Well, I think you're already seeing. Um, a very different kind of category of career people who are filling the senior positions, even in the latter stages of this term of the Trump's president of Trump's presidency. So, whereas in the early going, you had people like General Kelly serving as chief of staff, 
uh, and General Mattis as Secretary of Defense, um, people who had the stature and kind of the inclination to stand up to Trump, there are fewer and fewer of those with each passing month. The so-called guardrails. The so-called guardrails. And so, you know, um, Mulvaney has a very different approach as chief of staff than Kelly did. He is his overriding philosophy is let Trump be Trump. Don't try to get in the way or stop that. And so I think that, uh, you know, that will have an enormous impact uh, over the, the final year of Trump's first term and and possibly the the, you know, the start of a of a potential second term. And on that note, if history uh, is any indication, four of the last five presidents have been reelected. So as you talk to people inside the State Department and the foreign policy teams uh, at the White House, is there a concern of what a second term would look like? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that there's a lot of concern that a if Trump is not checked in a meaningful way here, which obviously didn't happen. Um, it happened only in a, in a completely partisan sense in the House that he was that he was impeached. And if he is uh, acquitted in the Senate, um, what signal would that send to Trump? Um, what what constraint would he see moving forward if if Congress um, ultimately decides that it's acceptable and okay for a president to solicit? interference from a foreign government in an American election and to solicit investigations of political rivals. Uh, I mean, that's a that's an astonishing precedent. I don't think any of us would ever would have contemplated encountering uh, in in American politics not that long ago. But conversely, the counter argument, if you talk to people inside the White House, is that these are individuals who were not loyal to the president's agenda. We need to make sure we basically clean house and put people in who support the president's agenda. I think that's true. And I think that actually, you know, in our story, we tried to make that clear, too. I actually think that's a valid point. Uh, a lot of the people who testified, a lot of the prominent national security figures in the Trump administration are people who took jobs, even though they don't believe in Trump's agenda to the extent that you can discern a Trump, an actual Trump agenda. Um, they took jobs either convincing themselves that they could educate the president, that his views about things were were wrong and that they could help correct them. Or once they got there, started to think of themselves as kind of containing the damage. Uh, we'll we'll manage to get more sanctions on Russia, even though Trump wants nothing like that. And so you end up with um, with a a sort of schizophrenic uh, administration where there are, you have a president who's surrounded by subordinates who don't believe what he believes, who don't want to do what he wants to do. And though, and I think that some of the important uh, uh, areas where where that plays out have to do with deployment of um, of American uh, military forces. Right, he has repeatedly sought to to uh, end American deployments abroad and been talked out of it, or had to had to overcome significant uh, obstacles internally. So it's it's they the sort of national security establishment does bear some responsibility here for this very dysfunctional dynamic. You bring up a lot of names, but a familiar one is Steve Bannon. He's uh, among the first to talk about what he refers to as the deep state. How influential has he been to this president, and is he still today? Uh, so I, we, you know, I thought my colleague Greg Jaffe and I thought it was important to talk with Bannon because. 
the attacks that so many of the witnesses endured in the Ukraine case are an extension of the kind of uh, attacks on this alleged deep state that began with the, at the very outset of Trump's presidency. And Bannon was in many ways the spirit of that, the architect of that. And we wanted to see how he saw this unfolding. It's hard to know whether he really has any meaningful influence on Trump at this point. It doesn't, see, it doesn't appear to be the case. Um, but his, uh, nonetheless, he is quite pleased with with what he sees here. He, as we quote him in the story, he's quite pleased with the, the attacks on national security experts, foreign policy officials, State Department officials continue and have intensified to such a degree. He sees all of that as a good thing. I mean, this is somebody who has, has um, called for essentially the, the eradication of uh, of government bureaucracy and and the kind of go- the class of government experts that we kind of count on to run things day to day. Our conversation with Greg Miller of the Washington Post. Two other players. First, John Bolton. Was he fired or did he quit? <laughs> uh, he's gone to great lengths to to litigate that point uh, on whether he was. I don't think there's any doubt that. His relationship with with Trump had deteriorated to such an extent that he was no longer functional as national security advisor by the end. Uh, his the the they had vast disagreements on policy areas, including in North Korea, uh, and uh, I mean, it really sort of is a distinction without a difference in the end. And the current Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. This is what he said in November when asked about his employees inside the State Department, those career Foreign Service officers. President Trump's policy has been consistent throughout. The State Department is fully supportive not only of what we've done, but our Ukraine policy moving forward. But no defense of your of your employees? Not yet. I always defend State Department employees. It's the greatest diplomatic corps in the history of the world. And yet he has perfected the craft of answering questions, but not really answering them. And, he's, and he is a, a perfect sort of case study for this this enormous disparity between what Trump really wants and what Trump says the policy is and what everybody else says. I mean, Pompeo is always trying to take credit for or point to um, the the more aggressive posture toward Russia, uh, aggressive support of Ukraine. Uh, and it's clear that that is all in spite of or uh, uh, in spite of what Trump would like to see happen. Um, and it's I you know we interviewed a lot of State Department people, a lot of Republican um, leaning uh, people for this story, who don't really believe that uh, that things have gone well under Pompeo. And in fact, there are there are some indications that morale there has deteriorated substantially from when Rex Tillerson was Secretary of State, which which is saying something. So, what questions remain unanswered in your mind? You know, I think that that. Uh, 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 very few factual questions remain unanswered, surprisingly few. This is like the Ukraine investigation is the opposite of the Russia investigation in that way because the Russia investigation, the, the Mueller investigation, we were waiting for an outcome for a long, long time. Will he be able to show that there was collusion or coordination? Uh, and in the end, he could not. And But we had to wait a long time to learn that. In this case, we have a transcript as the president like to, likes to say, read the transcript, that tells us that that is the most important piece of data 
even still this at this stage of the investigation and it and it shows you in the president's own words what he was trying to accomplish with Ukraine. I mean obviously the big looming question are what happens in the Senate when and whether the House refers impeachment to the Senate, what happens afterward and how does that play into the election that is rapidly approaching. So let me conclude where your piece begins with the following quote You write, the past three months have exposed the extent of which the national security establishment and the values that have traditionally guided American foreign policy are facing an extraordinary trial of their own under the presidency of Donald Trump. Yes, I think that that is one of the the most significant takeaways here. For Since the end of World War II, we have had this culture in Washington where you have foreign policy experts who, who take positions in government working for presidents of both parties, administrations of both parties, uh, lending and offering their expertise. And those people are under attack now in a way that we've never seen in our lifetimes. Does that leave you frightened or scared, not as a journalist, but as an American citizen? Well, I, I think yes. I mean, I think it, it leaves me, uh, uh, it should leave us all concerned, um, it's, which is not to say that these, the, the sort of expert class of Washington has gotten everything right. We've, seen, we've lived through many instances of where the decisions that they were largely responsible for have been disastrous for us. But when you have a president who is uh, so dismissive of expertise in general uh, and goes beyond that by being dismissive even of facts and uh, and accurate information, um, then, you know, it, 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 the, the, we often use this term guardrails, uh, the maneuvering room that presidents have to set policy within these guardrails is quite wide. Once you knock those guardrails over and don't worry about them. We haven't really lived through a presidency like that. My guess is that we will be talking to you a lot in the year ahead as this story continues to unfold. In the aftermath of the Ukraine crisis, a climate of threats and mistrust, the reporting of Greg Miller. It's available online at WashingtonPost.com, National Security Reporter. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you. We appreciate it. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.